Happy Feast of Palm Sunday. This feast is an interesting feast. In a, it carries with it the same tension that it carried in the time of Christ also himself. If you follow the events of Holy Week, especially the Gospel of John, where he, he lays it out more day by day, right? Is that yesterday we celebrated the raising of Lazarus? And you'd think that the raising of Lazarus would be something that would have made the people very happy. And it did make some people very happy, um, but it made a whole other group of people very upset. The miracle of the raising of Lazarus is what was the nail in the coffin figuratively and literally for our Lord, where it was the cause of the, we need to take him down from the leadership. And so even right after it is that after this great miracle, Everyone's asking, do you think the Lord's going to go to Jerusalem? If you pay attention to the readings from yesterday. And one of the disciples, we don't know if he was saying it sarcastically, says, let's go so that we can die too. Right? Is that they know that what's waiting for them in Jerusalem is going to be a disaster. The last time that the Lord went to Jerusalem, he wasn't as famous. Now there's this big expectation. And this expectation is what we're seeing in the readings today where he comes, as St. Mark's Gospel tells us, to Bethphage, or Bethphage, and Bethany. And if a lot of the times when the, when the Gospel writers are writing, um, when the evangelists are writing the names of places, uh, there is a reason. Sometimes it's to point people to a real place that they, they know it, and sometimes it's because in their native languages, um, the connection between what God was doing would be clear. For example, Bethphage means the house of unripened figs. So it's not going to be shocking when Christ curses the fig tree at night. So it was drawing parallels for those who are, who are reading it. But the Lord is now entering Jerusalem, and the people are now full of excitement. But their excitement is completely misinformed, and that's why it's a, it's a weird feast for us, because we're celebrating something different for them. To them... What is the name, what is the title that they keep crying out to the Lord? Their preferred title today is Son of David. A title that Christ never used for himself, even though he was the Son of David. Christ took the title Son of Man and used it. Christ used the title the Son of God, but he never used the Son of David. Because the understanding of the people of Son of David was, by being a descendant of David, you are the rightful king to expel the Romans and to establish for us another political kingdom. And Christ never used it, right? But this is the source of their joy. And they're coming to him with palms and laying out the clothing. It was not the first time that they had done this in their history, right? The laying out of their clothes they had done, um, I think it was for King Jehu, um, but it was a sign of honor, right? The laying out of palm trees was done for Judas Maccabeus, in the Maccabean revolt when they overthrew the Romans. So this, the reason I'm saying this is that the, the actions of the people were overladen with political overtones. They were not undertones, they were overtones, right? They were intentionally making a statement, this is the king, and they really meant the king. And they meant the political king. And what's more interesting is that our Lord is accepting this kingship. Because when he sends the disciples to go find this colt, he sends them and says, go to this place, you'll find a colt on which nobody has, has, has ridden. 
right? This was a traditional way of honoring royalty and kingdoms, is that this, the, 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 the throne or the chariot or in certain periods of history, the donkey or the, or the mule ridden by royalty could never be ridden by anybody else, right? It was now consecrated for this use. So when Christ is saying, find the one upon which nobody has ridden, he's making a statement. He is calling himself a king. It's just not in the way that they think. And he's fulfilling another prophecy that we don't think of, especially when it says that this colt was tied, right? In the book of Genesis, when Jacob is blessing his 12 children, when he comes to Judah, who Christ is a descendant from the tribe of Judah, he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, the kingship shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to him belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, which is blood, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So Christ is fulfilling all sorts of prophecies, and this should be a comfort to us. If you can think of the the best mystery movies or novels, right? As when they're dropping subtle hints throughout the story that at the end, everything makes sense all of at once, right? This is what the Lord has already been doing for them through all of history and throughout his entire life on the earth. Is dropping these intentional hints so that when the glorious moment comes, right? That everybody can look at it and say, ah, that's what was happening. Right? This was the beauty of the prophecies. So he's being prophetic and he's proclaiming that he's the Messiah, but he's not accepting the kind of kingship that they're looking for. They cried Hosanna, which means save. The name Jesus also means save. Without even realizing it, they were unintentionally being prophetic, saying, Jesus, save, Lord, save. But he's not a political king, and he's not coming on the kind of king throne that they were expecting. They would rather chariots than a donkey, right? That's the kind that they were willing. And we'll see throughout the week how everybody except his people recognize him properly, even nature, right? The cult submitted to him. No one's ridden on him, and yet there is no breaking required. When you want to tame a beast of burden to, to ride on, you have to break a horse first. You can't just jump on. There's work that needs to be done. But even this, this cult accepts the Lord without any kind of resistance. The fig tree, as nature will see, will bow to him. Thunder, lightning, earthquakes, the building of the temple, all of these things are going to respond to the Lord's kingship. But the kids are the ones who are pure. The kids are the ones that recognize him and they have no biases and they recognize him as king. Arguably, all these people were able to see Christ for who he was more than the leaders. But your biases, your biases will blind you. And you won't see the truth even when it's staring at you right in the eyes. Recovering our identity in Christ helps us see more clearly when we look at ourselves from the outside. Instead of looking at ourselves as the objective measure of truth. Yes, he's a king, but not that kind of king. And they didn't understand. 
The objective here wasn't to reign the way they thought. And we'll talk about that at night in the, in the evening Pascha. Instead, we look at the psalm and say, the Lord who reigns from the wood. Right? Our Lord who will reign from the throne of the cross. He would reign, but not from a seat of gold. He said he's coming gentle and meek on a donkey, unlike other kings who came with an iron fist. He's a paradox. When things are going horribly, which they were for the Jews at that time, people want someone to help. And this is often what we do. When we are in our difficulties, we look to the sovereign God and we ask him to enter and fix it. Unfortunately, the fixing doesn't always look the way that we're expecting or the way that we want. And this is what happened today. The people were living in oppression and they were seeking earnestly to see God save them from that. The miracles of our Lord and his ministry got them excited because it became clear to them that God was among them and, and speaking again. For 400 years, they had not heard the voice of a prophet. So they were excited and they had their own interpretation of what was happening. And their interpretation, now God's speaking, here's these miracles, here's a guy who can raise people from the dead, he must be going to solve it in this way that we're expecting. But it's not how God works. Sometimes we want God to heal someone and it's not the most right thing. Often we want God to undo the mistakes we make whether we cheated on an exam or we messed up at work or we betrayed a friend, whatever our problem is, we want him to pay our bills, but he wants us to learn to work. Sometimes we want something. We are not asking for a solution. A lot of the times we think we're asking for a solution, but we're actually asking for is God to undo what we've done. But that's not the way of free will. The fact is that we've done what we've done God wants to heal what we've done, but that's different from undoing what we did. God can take any mistake and heal it. He can use it as a source of grace, but to every action there is an immediate effect for what we do. And sometimes the remedy hurts, like a prescription or a procedure. And instead of seeing the grace that is in it, we turn on the one giving us a solution and we go ahead and crucify him literally. Yet our Lord still does the work. Our Lord still is Hosanna in Lord save us. He is still doing that work in spite of the ignorance of the people. He didn't stop the work of saving even when we work against him. In fact, these same people don't distract him when today they're saying Hosanna, son of David. He's unaffected and he knows that on Friday, the same people will shout, crucify him. And it's no coincidence that this great feast was the beginning of Passover, a remembrance of the great event that led to the exodus of the Egyptians, exodus from the Egyptians, from their slavery. And I'm sure the plagues and the Passover seemed unpleasant to the Jews in the moment, even though it was a solution. Even though they were excited to be delivered from the hands of the Egyptians, it meant work. They're girding their loins, they're ready to run, they're in hot pursuit, they're getting all of their, their belongings together. It's not comfortable, right? But the solution was the solution nonetheless. Yet the events that happened were used for the benefit of all. It was to save the Jews, yes, and it was also to save the Egyptians. 
It was to deliver the Jews and it was to deliver the pagans. And these are the two mules that our Lord rides upon according to the church fathers. That he is now reigning over the Jew and the Gentile. And this event is the same. The lamb, the Passover lamb, was being prepared for all people. And he was, like Judas Maccabee, cleansing the temple and ridding them of the lies and false kings. But it was also him proclaiming life. It was also him allowing the Gentiles in. It was him working through death to bring life. The Pharisees, like Caiaphas before them, speak a contemptuous word that John intends us to understand in a more positive sense. In this last verse that we read, they scoff at Jesus and they, they say, who, basically, who are these, these random nobodies that are following him? The whole world has gone after him. These, these unillumined, uneducated people. This rabble that doesn't know the law. They regard themselves as superior, that they know the Torah and they know what's happening. But we will see before the end of the week that it was these people accused of not understanding whose spirits did recognize and understand. Ask yourself, are you somebody who treats the Lord with contempt? Are you someone who the solution doesn't match what you want? Get angry or ask where's the grace in all of this? Are you somebody who only joins in for the resurrection? Or will you participate with him for the whole week? Are you somebody who despises suffering or recognizing, recognizes its therapeutic need? Are you sarcastic or condescending about things that don't match how you imagine them? Are you one who praises those who only agree with you? The crowd, again, who cried Hosanna was the same crowd that cried crucify him. This week is the call to remembrance of our Lord's suffering for us and how that suffering was life-giving. The Lord and his church call us also to suffer with one another in order to be raised with and in him for us and for all humanity. And though the rest of the week will be full of agony, even if but for a moment this morning, we rejoice as Christians for the coming of our King to reign over the kingdom of heaven, to reign over our hearts. And while we rejoice in our recognition of him as the true king in the true way, we also ready ourselves to accompany him in his passion and suffering that he did on behalf of the whole of humanity. To him be glory now and always and unto the age of all ages. Amen.